Today I have the pleasure of sharing this podcast episode with who I would describe someone as an intellectual heavyweight. Um, <laughs> no other person than Professor Ananda Menon. So um, my, curi- my curiosity led me to do a little digging, as you do, in preparation. And into the meaning of your first name, which actually means, if I'm right, is of Indian extract um, meaning happiness or joy. Yep. And we are very in happy Sa- today. Joy in Sanskrit, I was misnamed. Oh, gosh. I'm joyful. Well, you are. Hopefully, you will be today for <laughs> this interview. Hopefully, you can share some of your joy and happiness with the listeners here as well. So, I'm Faith Brunel, and I'm actually here today in King College London, where I'm studying uh, or reading politics. So, well, I hope my listeners will agree that you did bring a little joy to their day. So, the stage cool. is now being set. Let's delve into it. So, now, I'm just going to share... With, uh, just going to share with the listeners a summary of your kind of achievements and what you're currently doing. So okay. feel free to sit back because I just tell them. Let's take it to the water because they're fighting. There are a number of achievements, everybody. So brace yourselves. Okay, so Anand is director of the UK in a changing Europe, a unique initiative funded by the Economic and Social Science Research Council based at King's College London. Uh, before coming to King's, Anand was a professor of West European politics, something I'm very interested in myself as a politics student, and founding director of the European Research Institute at the University of Birmingham. Birmingham, I'm, I'm actually from Birmingham originally, yes. Oh, right. Yes, my so family lives in Birmingham. Anyway, so prior to that, he was a university lecturer at, in European politics and a fellow at St. Anthony's College in Oxford. He has held visiting positions at New York University, Columbia University, and the University Libre de Bruxelles, among others. He is an Associate Fellow of Chatham House and a Senior Associate Member of um, Nuffield College, Oxford. He is co-editor of the journal West European Politics. So now you understand why I yeah, introduced Anand as an intellectual heavyweight, right? So you can really see that um, there. So yeah, very impressive, Anand. Great stuff. And I'm, I'm intrigued with you being um, an Associate Fellow of Chatham House. Obviously, I've heard, I've heard of, of the Chatham House rules. So how do they align, you know, how do they align given the focus for debate and dialogue? And are you ever tempted to identify the source of your information? Well, I'm reluctant to talk about how they do things. I mean, mm. being an associate fellow is a very loose connection. They're a very, very good organisation. Yeah. You should go to their website. I have gone to number of their events, yeah. Uh, so they do really, really good events. Yeah, they do. Uh, when it comes to information, it, it depends. I mean, a lot of my work with UK and Changing Europe is takes place in private. Mm-hmm. So you do private briefings for civil servants or for politicians. Yeah. Everything that happens at those meetings remains within, within those four walls. Yeah. So if you hear stuff in those meetings, you don't repeat it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And have you ever been tempted to or not? No, not really, because mm-hmm. it would shatter our the trust that we've built up with people. Yeah. I mean, yeah. actually, in our world to work closely with government or with the civil service mm-hmm. or with political parties, they need to know you can be trusted. Yeah, completely And agree. actually, if you come out and start blathering about <laughs> what they've said, that's gone. It's not going to work. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree, Nanda, that, you know, um, having studied politics as well and kind of really diving into key ideas about trust, public trust, and especially them being able to trust you mm. is really imperative and important. So let's kind of delve into your engagement then. So tell us about your roles as Director of the UK in a Changing Europe and Professor of European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London. Well, I only do one of them, so I don't do the second one in the sense that the first is now full time. Mm. Right. The, the, the other one is, is, it's not my day job, it's the job exactly. I will go back to if UK in a Changing yeah. Europe stops. Okay. So UK in a Changing Europe is what I do. And mm. what we try and do is use the research that social scientists do to inform debates about what's happening in Britain, what's mm-hmm. happening about relations with the EU, what economic policy yeah. is looking like. So we're trying to make research accessible, yeah. I suppose. 
And you really have as well, because I think that, you know, I'm actually, I'm actually a subscriber to the UK Interchange in Europe, and I've had a number of events, and they've been really insightful as well, and they are accessible. So to anybody who is interested in politics, Brexit especially, and Europe as a whole, then do feel free to head to their website and visit it, and I'll put all of this in the episode Brilliant. description. And I'll tag them on Instagram and Twitter, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you're aware young people, you know, are very, very, you know, social media savvy, so... They'll love that. So how do the two worlds... Well, I was going to ask how do the two worlds complement each other, but at the moment you're doing that full-time, yeah. which is still great as well. So what advice would you give to students, like, you know, political advice, kind of, or political students, as to how to choose an area of specialising in terms of, like, any motivational tips or things like that? You've got to find something you're interested in. It's mm. the only thing that matters. I mean, if you're going to go on and do a master's or, God help you, a PhD or something <laughs> like that... It has to be something you're interested mm-hmm. in because if you're doing a PhD, by the end of it, you won't be interested in it anymore. I mean, the trick is mm. to be as interested for as long as you possibly can be. And there is no substitute for that. And it's very easy to say, oh, I want to work on an area that is topical. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. But the key thing is it's an area you've got to find fascinating. Otherwise, yeah. you're not going to stick in. I completely agree. And one of the key values here at Faith by the Inside is to choose something that you're interested in. Yeah. And also remember that it's not an event, it's a journey. So you might be doing this for quite a while. So yeah. you have to have that foundation of, of basically enjoyment as well. And I completely want to second that as well. So you have written extensively about politics in general, uh, politics from a UK perspective and in relation to the European Union. And one publication I'm sure the listeners will be interested in hearing about is called Uniting the Uniting the United Kingdom. What comes after Brexit, Foreign Affairs, July 2016. So yeah, can you talk to us a bit, a bit about that then? <laughs> I can't remember it. Uh, I think... <laughs> February 2016? Um, July 2016. It was July 2016, okay. yeah. So that was that was probably the first thing I wrote mm-hmm. uh, after the... Like, the first proper thing I wrote after the referendum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in that piece, it's coming back to me slowly, uh, <laughs> the aim was to get a sense of the sort of anger that mm-hmm. had led to the Brexit vote. I think some of the analysis in it was wrong and a bit naive, actually, looking back. Right. I think, you know, it's very easy to talk about these left-behind voters, and they were mm-hmm. important in the sense that a lot of those voters who we didn't expect to vote actually did vote, and that was one of the reasons why the thing went the way it did. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't lose from sight that the majority of Leave voters were relatively well-off Tory voters. Right. They weren't relatively badly off Labour voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in that article, I was trying to give a sense of the anger that that less well-off group felt yes. and their frustration with a system they thought wasn't responding to their needs mm-hmm. and that was one of the reasons why they voted against the status quo because they thought the status quo was rubbish right and uh, that's interesting actually. not because they necessarily had a plan right but because as, as one of them said to me once when we were up there in yorkshire before the referendum mm-hmm. i mean things are pretty crap now so why not shake the dice yeah and that's the thing about about the status quo and going with the status quo as well and obviously like you know in your book you have outlined that kind of danger haven't you of kind of like always following it so in terms of status quo then would you say that there's a danger in always saying okay because we've done it for 20 years so let's just continue or do you think as you said it's good to shake the dice politically i mean that depends who you are and what you want i think there is a danger of complacency i think you could probably argue that the broad political class from Mm. both parties that had ruled this country since maybe even the 80s, but certainly through the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, had been uh, complacent. Mm -hmm. Uh, The electoral system meant that the Labour Party didn't really need to listen that much to people in some of those northern constituencies because they assumed Mm. they were going to win them. Right. Uh, 
And I think if you have a political system that allows you to take voters for granted, you mm. you are quite possibly going to get a kick up the bum at some point. Yeah. Uh, what happened with the referendum, of course, is that we had a vote where every single vote counted. Mm. So it was no longer like an election where you have safe seats. And one of the things the Leave, Leave campaign did brilliantly well was say to them, voters and their supporters, this is the one time where all your votes count equally. Mm. So if there's one time in your life when you're going to go out and vote, do it now. And I think that message worked quite well. Yeah, I think as you just mentioned then, for things like um, that was a time where all votes were kind of seen or deemed to be equal. Mm -hmm. Now, I think obviously historically, because of the the electoral system, first past the post, but kind of like it favours, we all know it favours the the two main parties, Labour and Conservative. So Mm -hmm. would you say that within the Brexit vote, it gave kind of the opportunity for kind of the arguably minor or smaller parties to come to the forefront, maybe UKIP or other parties like that? Well, it wasn't a party issue per se, but yeah, there was an issue that UKIP had majored on Mm -hmm. that was suddenly front and centre and people had to take sort of make their choice and yeah it gave Nigel Farage a far bigger platform there's no doubt about that but it meant that people you know could vote on this issue I mean one of the frustrations Mm. I think that people had felt is if you believe like I do that Brexit is about a larger social values division between social liberals and social conservatives Mm. the problem facing social conservative voters in the UK up to 2016 was that both major parties were essentially social liberal yeah and, you know, remember, I think four million people voted for UKIP nearly in 2015. They got one MP uh, because, you know, the vote was evenly divided across the country, which meant yeah. that they, did, they didn't get enough votes in any particular place to get more than one MP. Uh, so you had a groundswell of, of social conservatives yeah. in the UK who mm. felt they had no political voice. And what happened in 2016 was they found a political voice and it was called Leave. Yeah, it gave rise to that. Yeah. It gave the opportunity. But it gave rise to it, but, but it, it, gave the opportunity. it gave them, a, it gave a platform. them an identity. Right, it gave them an identity and a platform yeah. by which to express their opinion. That's really interesting as well. I don't know, obviously, on the questions you haven't, I haven't fed any about Brexit, but just hearing your opinion about it is really interesting. And I just wanted to ask them, so... Um, Obviously now we're in 2022, can you, you know, what are the kind of, in your mind, what are the biggest aftershocks or after effects of Brexit? Very broad question, I know, but maybe even economical, political, social. Well, I mean, there are loads. I mean, clearly mm. it's changed the relationship between the UK and the EU. That's Definitely. The yeah. first one, that's what it said on the tin. <laughs> uh, it's had an impact on our economy because we're seeing trade with the European Union decrease because mm-hmm. trade has become harder and it takes longer and is more expensive. So people are trading less. It's had a massive impact on the domestic political debate. Uh, you know, one of the side effects of that left-behind vote is that we have now a government that focuses on levelling up. The yeah. political priorities have changed quite significantly. If you compare the political uh, rhetoric now with the political rhetoric pre-June 2024, it's completely different. Mm. Uh, and finally, it's had a massive impact on the UK itself. It's sort of given the SNP a new le- reason to press for a, a, a referendum. Mm because the status quo has changed, and it's destabilised politics in Northern Ireland. So across the board, I think, this has had massive yeah, repercussions quite. that are going to be playing out for years. Yeah, yes, and that, that was actually leading, uh, that led into my next question, like mm-hmm. how long do you think these are going to actually play out, and you think for years? Well, it'll, it'll be a factor forever, right. won't it? Our, yeah. I mean, our relationship with the European Union is always going to be a factor, and at the moment being, you know, being outside it means we're not a member, we don't have to adopt their laws, but mm. there's still a massive market on our doorstep, so we yeah. can't just pretend they're not there. 
the Ukraine war is showing that actually we probably need to work with some of these allies quite closely mm. to counter security threats. And as for the domestic repercussions, I just think, you know, the kaleidoscope of politics and economics has been well and truly shaken. Yeah. And it's going to take a long time to settle and then we'll have a new normal that wouldn't have been possible without that yeah. That kind of. Um, I was actually going to ask you about the Ukraine war. Obviously, you know, it's very topical now. We have to always kind of remember those who are going through these, you know, atrocities as well. So, I want to put that out there. But my question was: Do you think the UK uh, response is being affected by the fact that we're no longer members of the EU? Indirectly, I don't think we've done anything that we wouldn't have been able to do if we'd okay. been in the European Union. I mean, obviously, we've had to have mm. a separate sanctions regime, mm. uh, which would have been uh, impossible within the European Union. But I think what Brexit has done is because we have a government that is determined to show that Brexit has an impact, they've been hyperactive in yeah. their support for Ukraine. Partly because they support Ukraine, partly mm. too, I think, to bang home that point that we're an independent country and we can do things differently now. Mm. I don't think it's true. Right. But as a political trick, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I thought kind of slotting in that question would be Mm -hmm. quite interesting just to gauge your thoughts on that. And yeah, so actually a question that I was actually asked in my seminar, because I'm also doing that, I was doing the um, topics in politics and political economy module here at King's. And one question, one question my seminar leader actually asked, which is a very good question, was do you think that the UK will ever, you know, rejoin the European Union? I'll I'll never say never. Mm. I think it will not be for a long time. Yeah. Uh, simply because it will probably take five to ten years of negotiation anyway, mm-hmm. and it's not even going to be on the agenda until one of the big two parties has it as a policy platform. Yeah. Neither Labour nor the Tories actually want to talk about that. Right. Yeah, very interesting, very interesting. Yeah, and I actually said a similar thing. I was saying that kind of, never say never, obviously, and obviously maybe in years to come, maybe if we change administration, we might see obviously that kind of like rejoin um, from the UK, you know, into the EU as well. And that's very, very interesting. And obviously I'm actually doing the EU module as well. Right. <laughs> I'm at, Yeah, I'm doing a lot of, so I'm doing two modules. I'm doing the, the topics one and I'm doing the EU one. And by studying those, it's really, really opened up my eyes in terms of Brexit and kind of what's been happening really. Because, and I actually kind I want to say like in terms of the 2016 Brexit referendum mm-hmm. do you think people were properly made aware of the repercussions of Brexit? No but I don't think that makes it massively different to any other political campaign mm-hmm. uh, and actually we didn't know the implications because the implications would have depended on the type of Brexit and actually in the referendum we didn't really discuss the different sorts of Brexit that mm-hmm. would exist. So it wasn't, the Leave campaign didn't say, we're going to leave and leaving is going to look like this, so decide for yourselves. They said, mm-hmm. we're going to leave and we're deliberately ambiguous about what they meant leaving, what they meant by leaving. Yeah. Which meant that a lot of people supported Leave thinking we'd end up like Norway. People supported Leave thinking we'd end up like Canada. Exactly, uh, yeah. And, and so, we, you know, it was only when Boris Johnson signed the deal that we were finally aware of what Brexit looked like. Yeah, and that's the thing for me, because, you know, in my research and in my studies, I, you know, I discovered, because I actually did um, politics A-level, mm-hmm. and we're talking about how, obviously, like, back then, what is Brexit and what is the EU were very, very frequently searched. So it seemed as if, kind of, from a statistical point of view, that people weren't really aware as to what they were voting for. But then, as you've just said, it, you know, it might not have even changed the outcome anyway. Well, I mean, you know, in a general election, a lot of people vote on the basis of tax. Yeah. <laughs> Very few people in this country understand British tax, the British tax code. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. the details of it. So I think, you know, I think, yes, 
it would be better to have a more educated and better informed electorate. But I don't think it's necessarily the case that people were uniquely informed when it came to this referendum. Right. So you're saying that with anything, there will always be some yeah, kind of doubts or yeah. yeah imperfections within that, and that's quite interesting as well. And yeah, and I just want to kind of stray briefly away from Brexit before returning to the question. I'm mm-hmm. just kind of um, you know winging it here, and that's, that's the beauty of being a podcast. You can just think of questions. So thank God for that. But yeah, I was going to ask you in terms of obviously we know I'm sure you're you're, you're very familiar with the AD referendum in 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously we're still stuck with kind of not stuck with it's according. You know, it depends on what you believe, right? We've still got first past the post. So do you think that it's plausible that we're ever going to get AV, a proportional system, or are we always going to have first past the post? Again, you never say never, but the problem with uh, changing the electoral system is you're expecting a party that has won mm. under the old system to change it. Yeah. And if you've won under the old system, what possible incentive do you have for changing it? And, of course, the expectation now with mm. a referendum is with a... with uh, electoral reform is that we'd have a referendum. Yeah. And given what happened in 2011, it's very hard to see how you would get a solid result in favour of. I mean, for most people, it's just like there, there wasn't enough interest. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sceptical, to be honest, yeah. about whether it's going to happen. As am I, to be honest, because um, when I had a brief look at the turnout as well, it was kind of unexpected because most people thought that a lot of people would turn out and vote for the AV refer- you know, for AV to kind of replace mm-hmm. Westpath Post, but in theory they actually didn't, right? In practice, sorry, they actually didn't, so things did differ. But that's really interesting. And um, and I just want to briefly mention then, so obviously within First Path of Post, you kind of have the Boundary Commission mm-hmm. and obviously the constituencies within the UK. So, um, you know, through some research on First Path of Post, there, there's this kind of lingering argument that purports that kind of the government of the day can manipulate the borders in, you know, in favour for them to win. And it's also referred to as malapportionate or gerrymandering. Do you believe that exists or do you think that's just a... It's not an yeah. ideal system. I mean, it's not necessarily out and out gerrymandering, but the mm. fact is that you've got a government with huge power and a majority in Parliament. So, mm. <laughs> yeah, it, it is always difficult when you change the boundaries before the next election, and it looks very much as if the Conservatives will do quite yeah. well out of this process. And one more question then. So obviously we know that you know Theresa May kind of signed the Confidence and Supply Agreement with the DUP. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's really changed the outlook or changed the kind of... Um, yeah, has, has it changed a lot in terms of the UK politics, or is it kind of well, not a mere difference? Obviously, it's made some difference, but how much of a difference do you think it has made? Well, I think the Brexit process and mm. the way it's been handled has destabilised politics in Northern Ireland, and I think as a result of that process, the DUP have found themselves severely weakened, mm. partly as a result of what happened under Theresa May, partly as a result of what they see as Boris Johnson's betrayal. So, yeah, mm. it's changed politics in Northern Ireland quite yeah. fundamentally. Yeah, um, I completely agree with that. I do think it kind of has weakened that power as well and shifted the paradigms, really. And I just want to um, just ask about the SNP. So, obviously, mm-hmm. there are kind of, there is representation of the SNP within Parliament. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now that Scotland is kind of like, um, kind of more campaigning more avidly for their independence, you know, through their leader, Nicola Sturgeon, do you think that's going to be, do you think that will really negatively affect Parliament in terms of like its makeup or? What do you think is going to happen as a result? If it, you know, let me rephrase. If Scotland does become independent, how will that change UK politics now? Well, it gives the Conservatives a, a, bit, a bigger majority mm-hmm. because there's no SNP or an opposition party. But I think yeah. that we're a long way away from being able to assume that Scotland is going to vote for independence. Yeah, that's why it's a you know, hypothetical situation mm-hmm. if, right? Because we don't know if it's going to actually be plausible um, in practice. So, yeah, so what would you say then? Let me revert back to this okay. tweet. Um, what would you say is your greatest achievement to date? God, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm proud of the UK and changing Europe. I think we've done some good work and I mm-hmm. think we've 
we've changed the attitude of a lot of people, politicians, journalists, broadcasters, towards uh, academics. Yeah. I think they no longer think that academics are necessarily boring and useless, but a lot of them will come to us for help or advice or information, and that I'm quite proud of. Definitely. As someone who, ha who has kind of engaged in those events, I'd say that you've made people aware of Brexit as well. I think being a student, right, I think it's really accessible, as we mentioned earlier before, and I think that it's kind of given you that insight, right, you know, and giving you such a platform to use and you know your um, recent event when you were talking about like Brexit it was, in, uh, it was an in-person event unfortunately I couldn't go in person but mm -hmm. even those kind of events as well coming out of the kind of the earliest days of the pandemic we're now kind of moving out of it yeah. it's good to see that, that we are kind of adapting with those times and obviously we're in person now and back in 2020 yeah. we couldn't do that so yeah that actually leads me to my next question then so are there any upcoming events with, within the UK training Europe that you want to just yeah, well, I say, if you go to our website, we've got an event coming up in a couple of weeks with Fiona Hill, who used to work in the Trump White House. We've got an event at the end of this month on the state of the UK economy, which is a day discussing what Brexit has meant, what COVID has meant. And if you're interested in either of those things, just sign up on the website and come on. Excellent. And the website is www.ukandeu.ac.uk. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Anand. Um, yeah, and then finally, then, well, I say finally, but that's a. It's a prerequisite to the next question, but you have been a, a, a guest kind of um, on Newsnight, right? A quest experience on Newsnight, the, the Today programme, Question Time and the News Quiz. How do you prepare and what are the key messages that you try to get across to the various audiences? Well, it depends what the question is. <laughs> uh, and, and they're very different sorts of mm. programme. I don't tend to prepare for the News Quiz. Yeah. Uh, question Time, I mean, Question Time, you try and guess, though. You? you look at what the big stories are. Mm. You try and give yourself some basic statistics and stuff to mm -hmm. be able to answer questions with. Things like Newsnight or the Today programme, you don't particularly prepare okay. because you're asked on about a specific issue, which is either something you've said something about or published something about, so you're pretty confident. That so you, you know, know like anyway. your stuff, yeah. yeah. Excellent, Anand, thank you. And then, so if people want to get in touch with you then, how can they do that on social media? Through, uh, on my Twitter account, which is at Arnon one that's vibrating. I thought that was my own. Thank <laughs> okay, thank you. That's excellent. So thank you, everybody. This has been Faith Brown Insights. I'm Faith Brown. This is Anand Menon. For more information, feel free to visit my website at www.faithbrownsinsights.com. Follow me at Faith Brown, Faith B Insights. And follow Anand once again at, on your Twitter. At Anand Menon 1. Excellent, everybody. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in. Thank thanks, you, Faith. Anand. Thank you.